Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, one day, it just started to rain. We're talking Troy, Ohio, and Tadmore, Ohio, and the 1913 flood. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Welcome to episode 3 of season 6, also known as 6.03, and tonight it's just going to be some nerdy local history uh, that I've been excited to do kind of all week. I've been wanting to do this show for a long time, and uh, finally got a chance to fit it in amongst other things. So, don't worry. It's not going to be, like I said, it's not going to be the, the spookiest, creepiest, weirdest episode ever done, but uh, there will be a little something-something to talk about here 
when we get to Tadmore, Ohio. But I wanted to sit down and talk about a subject that has been like near and dear to my heart uh, for as long as I can remember, and that is the Great Flood of 1913. And it, it affected this whole area. So Troy, Ohio, it's not where I live, but it is the nearest town that has anything in it. Like, I live in a village a few miles away. We've talked about it. First episode. Go back and listen. And uh, so, like, if I need to go get groceries, you go to Troy. You need food, you go to Troy. Like, everything, it's Troy. That's the next town that has a stuff in it. And uh, Troy, among many other towns, and probably about a 30-mile radius, like Piqua up north dealt with the flood. Troy dealt with the flood. Vandalia, Dayton, all the way down to Dayton. So probably about 30-ish or so miles dealt with this um, this flood in 1913, among other places. But that really that 30-mile area is the big area in question. And uh, there were a lot of towns I could have picked to do this for, but I picked Troy because, A, I'm super familiar with it, and uh, I can get there in like five minutes. B, there is a book written, which I used, entitled Troy and the Great Flood of 1913. And uh, Dayton has a book, too. Like, not every town had a book. So it was like, do I want to do Dayton or should I pick Troy? Because I knew there would be a lot of stuff to dig into if I had a book. And just with the way stuff has been, super busy at work, and just a lot of, a lot of stuff like that, I didn't have a chance to really hit up a lot of local history museums, which was the original plan. Still will probably do it and maybe do some retroactive stuff. I'll get into it later. But tonight, I just want to get into Troy and Tadmore, which is now a ghost town, which I didn't even know about until like, I don't know, three weeks ago. If you're on Patreon, I've already shown you some stuff about Tadmore. I've already been there taking some pictures. But uh, that is the second topic for the night. We're going to talk about Troy. We're going to talk about Tadmore and how these towns were affected and probably affected very differently in the end. Uh, one is with us, one is not, from the 1913 flood. So let's, uh, let's just get into it. Let's start with Troy, and then we'll work our way into the tale of Tadmore, Ohio, as well. Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookySciencesisters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you, and stay spooky.
Before we get into tonight's topics, I want to take a minute and let you know that there is so much more small town secrets to enjoy. Check out the Patreon. There are one, two, and three dollar tiers of support with stuff like a shout out on the main show, exclusive buttons and stickers, MP3s to the music I create, also an ad slash promo free version of the main show, as well as STS Backroads, the Patreon-only podcast that comes out in the off weeks, which means you'll get content every week, all in your own RSS feed. There is all of this and more. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash stscast or stscast.com and click on the support tab. And now, on with tonight's episode. Troy, Ohio is the county seat of Miami County. It's home to the annual Strawberry Festival, except for last year and this year. And even if they did have it, I would avoid it like the plague. But it's also where the very first barcode scanner using the modern UPC setup was uh, first used. That's right. In 1974, the Marsh Supermarket, at the Marsh Supermarket, it was used, you know, the, the scanner that we all know and love today, uh, was used to buy a pack of Wrigley gum. But before the gum, and before the festival, there was a devastating flood in 1913 that would not only change the course of the river, but the face of the town forever. The day before Easter, March 22, 1913, was by all accounts a beautiful day, if not a cold one. The next day, Easter Sunday, is when it started to rain, and it wouldn't stop for three or so days. There had been reports of harsh weather in the area, and the rain dumped as much as 11 inches into the Miami River. Troy sits on the banks of the Great Miami River, and at the time, the mostly defunct and unused Miami Erie Canal still carved its way through the eastern part of town. Massive rainfall caused these two bodies of water to swell and overflow. This combined with the already saturated and somewhat frozen soil left the excess water with little options. And by 6 p.m., the canal had overflown with uh, the river not far behind. By Sunday night, the rain was up to many people's ankles. By Monday night, it was up to their waist. In fact, by Monday evening, the president of the Troy Wagon Works, Charles Geiger, and an employee, John Eckert, were busy moving the company's records up to the second floor to keep the waters from getting at them. When Geiger left to go home, he was greeted at the building's entrance with muddy water and loose boards that had floated off from a nearby lumberyard. Unperturbed, Geiger lashed some of the boards together in order to make a makeshift raft and use that to get home. And uh, I just wanted to throw, I'm going to pepper in a couple of any little anecdotes, some stories uh, from the book. And that's one of them that I love because just imagine your crappiest Monday at work. It wasn't this bad. This is a man who wanted to go home at the end of the day so badly that nothing was going to stop him. He built a raft to go home. It wasn't like, 
oh, we'll just shore up here tonight. No, he was like, fuck this. I'm getting home, and I'm going to build some sort of flotation device. I'm going to MacGyver a raft and uh, get home. A small, poor community of mostly African Americans known as a Nineveh, which was kind of the name. If it was like a suburb, they would have called it that. That was just what it was known as, Nineveh. It was located right on the north bank of the river and also suffered heavy damage by Monday evening. Some who lived there in that area, which now are baseball, softball fields, and they've, they've been that my entire life, left. But many did not. Being so close to the river, that area flooded pretty much every year to some degree, so they were, they were used to it. Uh, and people all over town could hear cries and pleas for help coming from uh, the little community of Nineveh. And help did come. People came from other parts of town and even from nearby Cast Town, which is where I live, first episode yet again, uh, to help rescue as many as they could from the now-destroyed Nineveh, helping them find shelter and getting them to higher ground. Not all of them were so lucky. Four people who lived in Nineveh, Olive Bolden, Linda White, Reuben Jones, a pool hall owner, and Josephine Stewart, who was only 13, they had all climbed, into, climbed up into a tree in order to escape the water and ended up trapped in the tree and the cold for pretty much the entire duration of the rain and the flooding. I do believe that later in the week, because it was the end of March, it wasn't super warm yet, it was still technically winter, and uh, I, I do think, I want to say like Tuesday, I, do, I think it snowed a little bit, like Tuesday afternoon or something like that. So it wasn't like the warmest weather anyway, but they were all trapped in this tree uh, for days. Because the current that had developed around the tree was just so strong that no boat could get near it long enough for a safe rescue. Because the thing you have to think about is all of a sudden you have these people that want to rescue and get in boats and find people. But like you have all of these new currents that just they weren't there a couple of days ago. You know, you don't you know, you haven't had any chance to figure out how this water is flowing and what it's doing. So, you know, going out and getting people was a, a, a whole ordeal because it was just all of a sudden we're just a lake now and we don't understand how any of it's moving. A couple of men uh, did try to make attempts to get at them, but both times it failed. And in the third and last ditch effort, railroad worker Raymond Harrison and, and a junk dealer named Robert Kenny attempted a final rescue. They succeeded in getting everyone on the boat, but the last person, but when the last person boarded, the small boat capsized. Everyone but Harrison sadly drowned. Harrison was rescued the next day as he had clung to the tree in order to survive. The next year, both Harrison and the now deceased Kenny were awarded the Carnegie Hero Medal by the Carnegie Hero Fund Commission. And I remember this story uh, from, you know, going on a field trip to Troy, which seems weird. 
and uh, and going around town and being you know shown all this stuff. And I remember that because that tree was still around. It it blew down. I want to say six or ten years ago. There was a big windstorm, and many a tree succumbed to it. And it was just like this huge old willow tree. It was like at the corner of one of the baseball diamonds. Like the, there's so what's what's there now at Nineveh are two big, well not big, I guess they're all, I guess they're regulation size, uh, baseball diamonds, and then there's a little stretch of land, and then the power plant, the Troy power plant is there, which is where the Troy power plant was back in 1913 as well. And kind of in between, like, past the fence, in between the fences of baseball diamond and, and power plant was this tree, and yeah, it was there, it was still around until about 10 years ago when it finally succumbed to some high winds. So as the flooding worsened, more and more people were ushered into homes on higher ground. Some houses had close to 30 people in them that had come to escape the high water. Many sprung into action in order to venture out and rescue friends and families. Take Wilbur Shaffey, George Torlina, and Howard Reichardt, who took out a rickety rowboat in search of a friend's brother, one L.A. Thomas. The men got lost in the rainy night, but eventually stumbled upon a man named Bob Mott, who had been hanging from a telephone pole for hours before they found him. Not the guy they were looking for, but uh, they rescued him nonetheless. Mott had been trying to offer assistance to his neighbor, who was wheelchair-bound. Together, the group ventured to Mary Frances Van Toll's home, and uh, they found Mary in her wheelchair on the second floor, on the bed, being held in place by her son. So they were on the bed just to get to the higher ground, and he's holding the wheelchair so that it doesn't roll off the bed into the water. They soon succeeded in getting Mary and her son into the boat. Uh, they had to leave the wheelchair, the wheelchair behind. She didn't want to leave it but they just simply couldn't. It wasn't going to fit. It was too heavy. It took up too much space. The men then got their bearings and found uh, Thomas's home. The home had been damaged, but he and his wife had survived. Mott, Mary, and her son stayed at the Thomas's home until the flooding stopped. By late Tuesday morning, more organized rescue efforts uh, were put together. Shelters were set up at local churches and schools and nearby farmers supplied food to those shelters. As the rain stopped, many ventured from their shelters to view the now flooded town. High railroad embankments made it possible to walk around the town and stay above water. And uh, I can attest to this, because the one thing I hate about Troy, this is also just an episode for me to talk about Troy, is uh, it's surrounded on three sides by the same railroad track. So unless you're coming from like the west, if like you're coming north, south, east, you and a train is there, you will get stuck on it. I have I have gotten stuck on one side and uh, attempted very quickly to get around it, to get back, only to get stuck by the same train as it comes as I couldn't beat it. So that's always bugged me about town is like if there's a train coming and you're not coming from a certain direction, well... You're just going to have to wait. Well, one one train track did get its comeuppance. The Big Four Railroad Embankment 
just made matters worse. The embankment was placed in such a location that it actually hindered the water flow, keeping much of it in town and not allowing it, allowing it to drain out, uh, I think to the south from where it was at. The decision was made at the behest of the railroad company to use dynamite and blow a hole in the embankment. And I've heard about this story too. I was always told that it wasn't so much the embankment that was the issue was that there was a, a bridge, like a train bridge that you could, you know, you could go under, and it had become filled with debris and stuff, and so essentially had become like a dam, and they blew, they used dynamite to blow all the debris out of it. But the, uh, the book I'm using said that, no, 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 they just blew a hole in the embankment, just in the dirt, and, just, and that uh, did the trick. This did come with a sacrifice, however, a Civil War vet named Henry Van Tool, not clear if he was related to Mary Van Tool and her son in the wheelchair. Uh, if you go, I've linked in the show notes. If you go, there is a site that kind of lists the dead that they know of. A lot of Van Tools listed. Not sure of the relation there. But he lived in a greenhouse by himself near the embankment at the time. He was advised to leave the area due to the onslaught of water that would soon come his way. He refused, and after the explosion, the water rushed around the small greenhouse, actually ended up knocking it over, and drowned Henry as a result. By the end of the week, the water had started to uh, recede, and many homes were damaged, either by water and mud damage, or worse, actually being lifted off of their foundations and, uh, you know, just pushed off and moved around. There is a great story in the book of a guy who uh, floated down the river on his roof from Piqua, which is the next town north, and uh, stopped, for lack of a better term, in Troy. There's another great story of, like, you know, I like to think of it like this. This probably didn't happen, but it makes me think. This is the way I think of it. Uh, the police chief was, like, he was put in charge of rescue operations, right? Uh, not a lot of boats, because they just needed, like, why do the police need, you know, a huge cache of rowboats? So they put out the word for rowboats, and uh, there was actually, at the time, a boathouse on the river was also washed downriver, you know, so I just, like, imagine them just looking for boats, only, ironically, for a boathouse full of probably rowboats to just like go past them down the river but yeah there were a lot of a lot of homes a lot of little properties like that that were just knocked off their foundations oh yeah there's also a great story of a piano floating down the river and just gently being left in someone's front yard pretty much no worse for the wear uh no one ever found out where the piano came from everyone assumes it came down from piqua but uh, no one knew just phantom piano Local companies, big and small, were also affected. Grocery stores and other shops held flood sales in order to recoup whatever they could. They just sold, like, just the biggest scratch and dent sale you could ever imagine, just to get whatever they could get back. The aforementioned Troy Wagon Works lost most of its machinery due to floodwaters getting inside the building. I think it said something like, in the basement, something like seven feet of water ended up 
in the basement of that building. The Hobart Manufacturing Company, who had just reincorporated a few days earlier, lost all of their records prior to 1913, as well as thousands of dollars of machinery. And I mention that because I used to work for Hobart. Um, I, I didn't work at like the big headquarter building that they're talking about. I worked at the smaller one down the street. Uh, I used to help, I used to make labels for the food scales that you go to like Walmart, whatever you get your, you get your ham and it prints out that ticket. Uh, in fact, I'm going to brag about myself just a little bit. If you go into a Walmart now and you go up to the deli counter and there's that scale sitting there and it has like a big LCD screen on it and the screen that you actually see that tells you your price and your weight and all of that stuff. Uh, there's seven of those, one for each department. And I, I'm the guy that designed all of those. So next time you go to the Walmart and you go to the deli section, you get some ham, you'll think of me. But, uh, that, 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 that happened. They lost all their records. They had just kind of changed their name. They were, it was like the Hobart electric manufacturing. Like they had changed the name a little bit just a few days before the flood hit and they lost everything. Sales records, employee records, like marketing materials, you know, all sorts of stuff. It was all gone because it was all like on the first floor. And I happen to know because I've been in the room where all the stuff is stored now. It's no longer on the first floor. It's on like the top floor of that building. Uh, and that's, I mean, everybody was affected by this. As you can tell every, every person, every business in some way, shape or form. Like there were obviously higher parts of town where people were able to, uh, you know, they weren't, their houses weren't flooded and stuff like that. But that doesn't mean that they were able to just go about their day as normal. And also all of these companies, just, you know, everything. Um, one thing I do want to mention there, it's not around anymore. I spent a little bit this afternoon trying to figure out where it used to be. And I think I found it. Uh, there was the Hainer distillery, which made bourbon. And at one time, they were the largest mail-order bourbon company in the country. Back in the day, when you could just get bourbon through the mail, no matter how old that you were. But uh, their building, the, the main building, was where they used, was the place where they stored uh, dead bodies that they found throughout the recovery effort. And that's where they kept them. I know where it is. I think it's now the Spinnaker Coding Building that makes labels and stuff like that. Uh, fun fact, my uncle used to work for Spinnaker Coding. He's the guy that invented the glue that is now on the back of postage stamps. You know, so you don't have to lick them anymore. You can thank him. I think, I think he was on the team of it. But that used to be, I'm pretty sure, at least some of it, because a lot of the buildings are gone, the distillery building where they housed uh, the dead that were recovered. In the end, precautions were taken to make sure that this flooding would never happen again. Many of the larger companies, such as the Wagon Works, such as Hobart, such as the, you know, the Hainer Distillery, donated money to help the rebuilt and recovery effort. But it was also a lot of just townspeople chipping in, like a committee with the mayor and everything was started to be like, we're going to rebuild our town ourselves. And so they got a lot of money just from their own citizens. But they also got some money from the state who had put uh, kind of like disaster money aside because of flooding. Like this, had, like I said, this had happened like a 30-mile radius 
and I think in other parts of the state too, but just maybe not to this extent. So money had been set aside to help rebuild these places uh, from flooding. So all of this coupled, like I said, money from the state, it all went into uh, creating the Miami Conservancy District, which was started to help build things like concrete embankments along the river. Uh, there's levees there now. Floodplains have been built there now. All sorts of stuff. The canal was filled in. Like, right before the flood, they were trying to figure out what to do with the old canal. They, they hadn't been using it. You know, it was just stagnant water. It was unhealthy. It was unsafe. It was getting kind of ugly. They didn't know what they were supposed to do with it. They were trying to figure it out. And the flood hits, and they were just like, let's just get rid of it. So they filled it all in, and they developed over it. And now there's two streets there, Canal and Race Streets. And that, that land there and those two streets are essentially where the canal used to be. And uh, there was actually a bend in the river that's no longer there. Like, they excavated it and dug it out to straighten it out. I'm not exactly sure why. I think it was to build a better floodplain in that area. But, uh, yeah, so that's what I meant by the beginning. They actually changed the course of the river a little bit in order to keep this from happening again. And uh, once again, I want to go back to the first episode. If you've listened to the first episode, uh, our old friend T.C. Harbaugh wrote a poem. He's the guy that saw the Snellagaster, or says he saw the Snellagaster in Cast Down. First episode, once again. Uh, he wrote a poem about what happened that year entitled The Flood. In the end, over 40 people died, either in the flood or in an outbreak of typhoid fever that followed the flood. And this was, like I said, just, this wasn't just Troy. This was Piqua, next town up north. This was Tip City. I don't know about Tip City. Maybe not so much Tip City, because they aren't super. They're the next town down south. They aren't that close to the river. Maybe a little bit on, like, one edge of town, but they, they were probably okay. And Vandalia, and of course, Tadmore, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And after this all happened, you know, like, there was the Miami kind of conservancy district. Uh, there was a big Dayton one, and they built, between here and Dayton, 30 miles or so, they built five dams along the river to uh, make sure that this never happened again. And that everyone, is uh, a tale, a story that has been in my head for my entire life. I've always been hugely interested. It was so fun. Not fun, I guess. It's so interesting to walk, to look back at all of these old pictures in that book and just, like, trying to figure out, like, where is this? Like, what's there now? You know, like, you look at this picture where it shows going up Main Street and there's the courthouse. The courthouse still looks like that. And everything else is just, like, trees and a couple of houses and you're like that's where everything is now like that's where the Wendy's is at and you know the La Fiesta Mexican restaurant is at and just trying to piece together where everything was and what's changed and what's still there uh, hugely interesting especially if you're around the area it's kind of the big thing and it, it makes me wonder about Troy and I, don't know, I guess to get a little paranormal about it just a little bit about um, like what kind of energies, what kind of 
haunts, what kind of things like that are around as a result of the 1913 flood. And uh, I'm going to explore that, I think, a little bit more. And uh, we'll, we'll see some stuff, I think, from that as uh, we go on. But uh, more on that as it come. But that is Troy. That's what happened to Troy during the flood and many other towns around. But uh, there's another town I want to talk about. A town that's no longer with us. The town of Tadmore, Ohio. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Troy not only survived, but thrived after the flood. However, the tiny town of Tadmore, just south of Troy, 
did not fare nearly as well. The town started as Tadmer, and then a, po a post office was established called Tadmer, so that's what they called it. But it was later changed to Tadmore in 1867. Tadmore was tiny, but an industrious town located on the Miami River in between Tip City and Vandalia. The little town had uh, the river and the Miami Erie Canal on one side and the Dayton Michigan Railroad on the other, as well as uh, the National Road, which was the first federally federally funded uh, public highway, if you will, in the country, going right in between the two, right in between the town. Tadmore consisted of just a few homes, a, uh, two bridges, one that went over the canal and another longer covered bridge that went over the Miami River, as well as a, a general store and the post office, they were all in the same building, and a small railroad depot. Even though the town was very small, it had become an important transportation hub. After all, it had access to like every form of transportation at the time, the canal, the railroad, and the national road. The town didn't exactly flourish, but it did hold strong as the 1800s turned into the 1900s. After the turn of the century, the town was on the cusp of real growth. And then the 1913 flood happened. The flood, like I said, tore through towns like Troy and Piqua to the north and Dayton to the south. These larger towns were indeed devastating, but the tiny postage stamp that was Tadmore didn't stand a chance. The small town was pretty much washed away and was never able to recover. After the flood, people did hang around for a little while. The covered bridge that went across the river did survive the flooding, which kept some people around because you could still get into town from a certain area because of that bridge, there was still a way to get into it. But as time went on, the town became more and more unattached from the transportation routes that had once sustained Tadmore itself. The railroad was moved a little further away and the embankment was built up in order to help keep high water away from the tracks. After the flood, five dams were built in between Troy and Dayton to help keep the river at bay. Because of this, National Road was rerouted to kind of go over the nearby Taylorsville Dam. And so that took the uh, the main kind of, I want to say like foot traffic, cars and stuff like that, that would have used National Road, just kind of took them away from Tadmore, cutting Tadmore off even more. And then, like I said, the bridge is still there to get over the river. But, like, when you look at Tadmore, I'm going to talk a lot about it because I just was there a little bit ago. Um, it's very small. And uh, you have, so basically you have the railroad, you have National Road, then you have the canal, and then you have essentially what was most of town, for the you know, off and on, and then you have the river. I don't think the little bridge that went over the canal made it. So that kind of cut it off from National Road anyway, because the canal was in between National Road 
and the river. So like with that with that gone, it made it a little bit harder to get in the Tadmore from National Road. And then National Road just went away anyway. So like all of these things just kind of just slowly killed what what momentum Tadmore had left. And uh, Tadmore suffered smaller floods for a couple of years after the 1913 flood. A small dam was built, but did little to do anything with the water. And by 1922, the town was pretty much abandoned. Over the years, the uh, forest took the town back, and soon, of course, tales of strange things in the woods near Tadmore came about ghost shadows in the night and uh, rumors of, you guessed it, ready? Satan worshippers meeting there at night. It became a ghost town of the proper order. And it, it was that way for a long time. Obviously, all rumors, right? There's never, like, the whole Satan worshipping thing is bunk, everything about that. But in the 1990s, construction of the Miami Recreational Trail on what is now Old National Road helped demystify the remains of Tadmore. And so the Miami Recreational Trail, we just usually call it the bike path around here. Uh, most of it, it, it's very long. Like it starts up in Piqua and it goes all the way down past Dayton stuff. And then it links up with other bike trails and you can get all the way to Cincinnati. You know, you can get get very far if you find the right paths but at least around here most of it is the old towpath to the miami erie canal the towpath is where they would pull the boats with the horses so most of it is what remains of the of that path but about a mile and a half before you get the tadmore it splits and so it splits and stops being the towpath and becomes a section of Old National Road, and that's now the bike path, the recreational trail. And then the, the towpath becomes the Buckeye Trail, which is like this huge hiking trail that's all over the state. And so they, they kind of split right there. And the, you, like, you, can, you can hike all the way up to it, or you can take the easy, paved, smooth bike path, path to Tadmore. So now, yeah, it's very, it's very easy. It's very accessible. It's right off the bike path, and it's even preserved and maintained by the Dayton Montgomery Park District. I've visited Tadmore a couple of times, and even though the stories of ghosts are more than likely embellished, I do feel that energy there, an energy I will be exploring more. And that's really it. Like I said, Tadmore was tiny. I'm trying to put it in perspective. I mean, it literally was... It was like literally just on the bank of a river. And then, a, then, you know, like if I had to guess, I'm giving it about the size of a football field, a hundred yards long by however long a football field is, like however wide it is. That's about it. You know, like you go there and you can, I mean, it's hard to imagine that they, they cramped all of that. Like you can find old sketches of it and stuff and all in the show notes, there will be many photos for both of these. Uh, maybe some new ones, stuff I took. Uh, might be a little late updating it because I want to go out this week and snap some pictures of some stuff. But I will give you guys plenty of photos of what this is, especially on social media. If you're on Patreon, you've already seen a bunch of pictures that I've taken and some stuff like that, some little videos here and there. 
but I want the reason why I wanted to talk about Tad more. It's, its story is pretty interesting, even though it is short. But I didn't know about it. I had no clue about it. I think I walked by it once on the bike path, but really didn't bat a whole lot of attention to it. I was with a friend. I think we were biking. We made it down the Taylorsville Dam. We came back up, and that just wasn't on my radar at the time. But like, it was my dad who found this little article online. Link in the show notes, and. I found out where it was, and I was like, well, that's nothing. Like, it's like, you know, a, maybe a 10-minute drive, and then you've got to walk a mile and a half to get there. And there's still a bunch of stuff left. Uh, the foundation of a couple of the homes are still there. They're kind of up on a hill. The, the, the foundation and the little bit of the where the cover bridge starts, the cover bridge and the and the store, post office, were like side by side. And that's all still there. The the pylons for the bridge to the canal are still there. Um there's this thing called Suicide Gate, which is very ominous. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if that was like the dam they tried to build, or I know there was also like a gravel pit at Tadmore, something probably something for the trains. And I don't know if it goes into that. I, that's one of the things I want to research more and find out exactly what Suicide Gate is or was, why it's called that, other than, than that it's right on the Buckeye Trail and it's a little washed away and it's a little treacherous to uh, walk over, but that's what's there. I don't know if that's it or if there's more to it than that. But I want to go back and I want to start spending time there. I want to do Estes Method sessions there. I want to do investigations there. Uh, I want to really attempt to cultivate and make a relationship with any energies, if you will, dormant energies that might still be uh, there because it is a very liminal space. It is perfect for that. You've got power lines, both new ones and old ones, you've got railroad that's still being used today. You have rushing water, everything. It's off the beaten path, kinda. I mean, it used to be, and uh, it's just perfect liminal space, a perfect place to wake up and investigate, and very easy to get to. And I can, we can go back for repeated trips very, very easily. You know, I wanted to do this for a long time. Uh, I wanted to do it with Bloody Bridge, which was the Halloween special, because that was pretty close. Also, on the Miami Erie Canal, but that's like an hour and some away, an hour north from here, and this is way closer. So, this won't be the last you hear of Tadmore. Uh, I'm gonna, I want to do some YouTube stuff. I want to do some more investigating with it, and really see what can be made of it. And that's why I wanted to share the story on the show. I know it's not the longest story in the world, and I've probably rambled for a little bit, but I wanted to introduce everyone to Tadmore and, you know, let everyone know that there's going to be some interesting paranormal projects that will hopefully come from finding this location and having access to it. And that's it. Those are my towns for this episode. Tadmore and Troy, thank you for joining me on this local history jaunt. 
I uh, hope you found some of it interesting. Like I said, check out that book. Check out the sources for it if you want to know more. But we're going to take a little intermission here, play some music. And of course, like always, I'll be back with a few local headlines to share. Uh, this first one is from Bolivia. It is going through Google Translate. Uh, I think it reads okay, I believe, when I read it through earlier. But if it does end up sounding a little clunky, I'm going to chalk it up to Google Translate. And this is uh, from the El Tribuno website. No uh, writer accredited on it. But the headline reads, They claim that aliens visit a town in Bolivia. The inhabitants of the Monte Guru neighborhood in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, claim to have received a visit from a being from another world who has very large eyes but cannot see and who also has hands with three fingers. Prior to its appearance, the neighbors reported that a halo of light appeared in the sky and uh, landed on the spot. As the object entered the sky, there was a crash, like thunder. Furthermore, the characteristic of the object was as if it threw fire, explained ufologist Javier Alaiga. According to the residents, after the outbreak, the alleged alien was seen wandering the streets, and they say that it had a resemblance to the legendary Chupacabra. 
frightening children and young people. According to those same neighbors, minutes after his supposed disappearance, the light in the sky went out, leaving traces in the form of circles in the grass. Aliga, who, dedicate, who is dedicated to paranormal issues, asked scientists to help to study what happened, but a psychologist suggests that it's just collective stress and that the inhabitants should receive attention in the face of what happened. And there is also a video here. Uh, they show some drawings of it and things like that. It's actually an adorable drawing. It's got this big head and these little hands and big eyes. But uh, did a chupacabra land via spaceship in Bolivia? I don't know. And uh, may maybe, maybe we'll find out. This next one is a ghost hunter spots disappearing creepy kid while exploring ruined building. This is on Unilad. This is written by Samian Javid. And it reads, uh, Hassan Barbar, a YouTuber from Jordan who regularly explores abandoned buildings in the hope of spotting ghosts or other spiritual beings. In a video posted to his YouTube channel in March, he is exploring a seemingly empty building when he spots a ghostly figure on either side. It is not clear what type of building he is in, but it appears to be unfinished and abandoned, with bare walls and floors and rubbish littered all around. Standing on one side, his camera captures the building through several other rooms, and at the other end, what looks like a ghostly figure of a small child appears close to the left of a doorway. It stands still, just long enough to give the viewer goosebumps, before disappearing out of sight to the left of the doorway. Hassan quickly follows, attempting to capture the figure again, but to no avail. Since the video was first posted to YouTube on March 21st, it has been rehashed on other social media platforms like Reddit. While the footage has left some users terrified, others accused the YouTuber of editing the footage and making up the presence of the ghost. However, as some people in the comments pointed out, Hassan live streams all of his haunted expeditions. Crazy video. You can hear the fear in his voice. He's doing all this stuff live. It's so annoying to hear people call it fake who obviously never experienced this stuff, one person said. It's not fake. You can go on the guy's YouTube and Snapchat where he goes into abandoned buildings and gets stuff thrown at him, doors banging, live with, str live with strings or mechanisms attached in very good quality sightings of gins, ghost in parentheses. He'll get something thrown at him and he runs into the room to see what is there and there's no one, another follower said. Some suppose that Hassan could have had help from a child who he has to pose as a ghost. You just have to have a kid to continue to hug the wall and move around to the left until he's behind the camera and then he exits the room through the door behind the camera and ducks into another room or outside. If you watch how the camera tracks, you can see how easy it would be to do. Easier still if you did a complete practice run before you started your broadcast, one person said. Yeah, and I, I kind of get that. I mean, all of these videos like that are suspect, but they are pretty creepy pictures. They're very clear. I will give them that. Uh, I've linked this into the show notes. The entire video is there, a 13-minute long video, I think, something like that. And I get it. You could have done that. You could have rehearsed it. You could have done it all for your live stream. But man, like, 
if that screws up, then you're you're toasted. You've been found out immediately. Uh, that to me, that's a big risk to be like, I'm going to risk my YouTube channel on this. I'm going li- to risk my live streams on this. Like, especially if you're dealing with a kid, like who knows? One wrong thing, and it, you know you're exposed. So I don't know. I, I like there's some good footage here, and I I don't know what quite what to make of it. I need, might need to go through and watch it again, but. It's in the show notes. Give yourself a watch. See what you think. And this last one is from Amon, which is a news site, I believe, somewhere in the Middle East. And this is creepy humanoid spotted crawling like a crab on CCTV leaves dogs spooked. Once again, no writer credited. It just says uh, from the Amon news. Footage of a weird creature said to be the legendary cryptid Lamana or a ghoul was shared on Reddit. People debated whether or not the bizarre figure was a human. The bizarre video shows a creature with weird bent legs running around on all fours with several dogs desperately barking at it. In the clip filmed at night, the figure crawls towards the camera with a crab-like motion and a dog scampers around yapping at it. A second dog then starts urgently barking in the background as the mysterious thing gets closer to the camera. The video, recorded on home CCTV in Costa Rica, was uploaded on Reddit by user Fit Than Fat in Humanoid Encounters, where people debated if this figure was a ghoul, lamana, or something much more mundane. One person commented, I think this would be human if it weren't for the odd back leg. There are too many bends in the back leg, but that said, video could still be faked. That's one person commenting. Similarly, another user said, The way those legs are bent is making me question it. I mean, I can also touch my toes when stretching, so I know it's possible, but either way, creepy. But other people were convinced the weird figure was just a human having a rollicking time on all fours, for reasons only they know. Someone commented, Right, probably someone under some heavy influences, dissatisfied by bipedal locomotion. Probably a crackhead who got a hold of the wrong stuff, said a second. Noting the barking dog, someone else wrote, I feel like the dog was a little freaked out, like, wow, dude, you good? The original poster said that the same creature had been filmed by two men who said that Lamana, that said it was Lamana and they feared getting scratched. Lamana is a Latin American so-called cryptid based on the legend of a witch-like woman with a horrific appearance who, according to myth, stalks people at night. She is said to strike terror into anyone who looks at her to inflict scratches and cast spells. And the video is very short. Uh, it's, it is CCTV footage. It's kind of sepia-toned. But you can see it. And it might just be someone acting weird on all fours, but it moves pretty good. And it's not like like they are on all... You know, like, I guess you could maybe tuck your head in your shirt and make it look like this, but, like, you watch it enough times, and the torso just doesn't seem long enough for it to just be a human scampering around on their feet and their hands. And just the way it's moving is moving very fluidly, very quickly. Like, I think you would have a hard time being able to move like that, kind of not seeing where you're going and things. So it's it's very creepy footage. Links in the show notes. Take a look. And, uh... Man, that was a hard article to read. That was worse than the one that was Google Translated. But uh, 
that has been this week's local headline. And on this uh, small edition of Your Small Town Secrets, I've only got one tonight. I am going to add my own similar experience to it because that's what attracted me to the story in the first place and why I asked if I could use it. Uh, really, it just I had an interview that was going to happen and then we had to push it back and uh, I kind of had to find something last minute to fill the space. But I have one Reddit story here from user Bedizzle3D about uh, a phantom scream. This happened approximately 20 years ago when I was 15 and living with my dad in an apartment-slash-townhouse community that was designed for seniors. My dad was well under the age requirement, but got in good with the landlords over the course of the time that my grandpa had an apartment, so they let him rent a townhouse with two bedrooms, both upstairs. This would end up being the second and final terrifying moment I had while living there. I'll save the other for another time, when I can descriptively and thoroughly recount the entire event. So we might hear from this guy again. A quick description of the floor plan. Immediately entering the townhouse, directly ahead is a hallway to the living room. But before that is the dining room and the kitchen to the right. Down the hall, just before the living room to the right, is a set of stairs with a six steps leading to the first platform and then turning and going back the same way to lead to the second floor with six more stairs that come to a hallway leading left to right. To the right is the master bedroom, which my which was my dad's, and to the left at the end of the hallway is my room, directly above the kitchen and dining room, with a bathroom just before my door on the left-hand side of the hallway. Side note, when the bathroom wasn't in use, the door was always closed, or mostly closed with the lights off. It was early evening on a weekend, and my dad, was, my dad was downstairs cooking a breakfast dinner, and I was upstairs lying in bed and reading a book. I knew dinner was going to be done soon, and I could smell the sausage cooking, as well as hear the sizzling on the oven. I put down my book and headed for the stairs to check on the status of the food, but when I left my door, I immediately froze in front of the bathroom door on my right, and noticed the light was on and the door was wide open. I can only describe this as my eyes feeling drawn to the back wall of the bathroom where the, or the shower slash bathtub was if I were locking eyes with someone who wasn't there and suddenly and violently I heard the most shrill blood-curdling scream I've ever heard and I felt absolute terror course through my body. I took off running down the stairs or more leaping to skip all the steps to land on the middle platform and then jump down the remaining stairs and hit the hallway to the bottom and booked to the kitchen where my dad was, calmly cooking eggs and sausage at the stove. He asked if I was okay, and I said, Did you just hear that? And he simply said, Hear what? And I explained what just happened, but he didn't hear a thing. Given the fact that the subtle noise like sausage cooking was audible from my room above the kitchen, I thought for sure that he would have heard the scream, as well as the neighbors also. Perhaps it was a psychic sound, or telepathic, or maybe I just momentarily lost my damn mind. Well, that is the recounting of my second most terrifying paranormal event that I have experienced. 
Uh, has anyone else had anything like this happen? And if you have, uh, I'd like to hear about it. I think uh, he would as well. But I want, uh, the reason why I did that story is because when I read it, I was going through trying to find some of these and I was like, that's happened to me. Not, yeah, very, very similar. Actually, the more I think about it, it was a while back, uh, living at home, my fiance at the time, the next fiance, it was with, was living there for a little bit as well. Uh, she was upstairs. My sister was upstairs in her room. And uh, I was downstairs. I want to say I was making popcorn. I think we were getting ready to watch probably some terrible horror movie uh, like we normally do. And uh, I was like, I was downstairs. I was making popcorn. And uh, I heard just the loudest, shrillest scream I've ever heard. You know, very audible. Uh, makes a lot of sense. So, like, there is... A, a grate that looks like it's part of like the the air conditioning system, the ductwork, but it's just a grate, like at the bottom of the top, the second floor bedroom, and then it just goes down and into the first floor. Like there's nothing there. It's essentially just a hole in the floor. So you could hear if someone screamed upstairs, you could hear it very audibly and very loudly. And uh, so I kind of go up, you know, to see like what's going on. What was that? And uh, they both just kind of stare at me, which is the dumbest look upon their faces. No one but me had heard the scream. So it was very much the same thing. I was downstairs making food. He was upstairs waiting for food. And uh, both heard a scream. No one else heard that everyone should have heard. And it wasn't like on someone's TV because the TV was on, but it wasn't very loud. Like you couldn't hear it. Uh, from the downstairs at all. It definitely wasn't from the TV. Like, you can tell when someone screams that it's actually a scream and that it's coming through some sort of speaker. So that was a weird, weird little thing that happened. Never really, like, nothing like that has ever happened since. And I just, I, I like this story because it was so similar, like I said, to what I experienced. It gave me an excuse to kind of share that experience with everyone else as well. So, um... Thank you, uh, Bedizzle, for letting me use your story. Uh, when you get that other one on there, message me, and uh, we'll, we'll use that one too. And that has been uh, your Small Town Secrets for this episode, and that has been the show. So if you have a Small Town Secret to share, uh, a phantom scream, a cryptid, a true crime thing, whatever, uh, there are a bunch of ways to get it to me, and we can share it on the show uh, the best way, of course, is to go to stscast.com, scroll down to that first page, the bottom of that main page there, and you will find an email form to fill out and send to me. And while, that, while you are there, check out everything else on the site. Show notes, pictures, sources are all there, uh, ways to support the show, links to merch, links to the Patreon, uh, links to all the social media stuff. It's all on there. And uh, speaking of social media, you can find me on uh, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Twitter and Facebook are the same. They are both at STScast. Instagram is at STScast.gram. So follow me on there. You can engage with me on there. Uh, I am most active on Twitter. But I've seen a huge influx of Facebook likes in the last week or so, like almost 100, which I think is the most that has ever uh, come to Facebook in a week's time. 
which has been uh, impressive. And thanks everyone for doing that. If you can, please leave a, a like, a rating, a review, whatever uh, your pod catcher, your podcast app of choice uses uh, for the show, especially if it's on iTunes. That just helps get the show out to more and more people. And uh, if you like the show, tell a friend about it. Tell a coworker about it. Tell a family member about it that you think might like it. If everyone that listens gets one more person to listen, then we automatically double the audience of the show. Uh, if you are on Patreon, we will be talking on the next Backroads episode about the Johnstown flood, which has one of the weirdest pictures I've ever seen. It's a barn with a tree in it, but like the roots, like it's like someone pulled the tree out of the ground, like tore all the branches off, made it pointy, flipped it upside down, and then just stabbed it into this barn. Uh, but that, and a lot more to talk about for the Jonestown flood, that will be the uh, Backwards episode on Patreon uh, for next week. So if you're on Patreon, that's what you have to look forward to. Thank you for supporting the show through Patreon. And uh, thanks everyone else for supporting the show by listening and liking and doing all that great stuff. I appreciate every listen, everyone that takes the time out of their day to sit down and enjoy the show. Thank you so much. And until the next episode, remember that every town has a secret. What is yours? Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 